0: Well, good morning, Edgewater. We don't typically begin sermons with a video, but uh, that's a good one from the Canadian Bible Society. They have some other good ones on YouTube you can look up. I I decided to show that video because I think that it is necessary sometimes for us to address up front some apologetic hurdles that we might have as people. Can I actually trust the Bible? All right? If you can't, if we can't, there's really no reason for us to be here this morning. Uh, So that's to help us, if that's kind of a defeater belief for you, like I I have a hard time believing because I don't understand the apologetic reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible, there you go. Hopefully that helps. I also offer it to you because that's actually not what we're talking about this morning. We are talking about the Bible this morning, but we're going to focus not on its accuracy, or its reliability, but on its relevance. And by doing that, we're going to 2 Timothy. We're continuing in the book we've been uh, teaching through over the last few weeks. If you want to turn to our passage on it's on page 996. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 17, I'm sorry, verses 14 through 17. Let me pray. Lord, what a glorious thing to think that the God of all eternity, with your perfect wisdom and forethought, decided to share yourself with us through your word. So, Lord, we, we come to your word this morning from a posture of humility, a posture of need. We, we are not you. And so we look to your word asking that your word would conquer us rather than us somehow conquering your word. We come from a place of need because we need your spirit to take your word and use it in us. So that we thank you that our confidence is in your presence here and in in your word that you've given us, Lord. Work this morning, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. The last verse there that the video uses is from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let me read it to you again. It says this, "...for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and hear this, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart." And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That clause there at the, end of cha- at the end of verse 12, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, is by God's grace, I hope, where we go this morning. That you would begin to consider, that we would consider together, what are the present intentions and the thoughts of your heart specifically concerning the Bible? What is your posture towards the Word of God today? It's probably slightly different in some ways than for for each and every one of us in here. That's why we ask the Spirit to come and help us to learn, to understand, to discern that He would use His word to discern our thoughts and intentions. Again, I'll ask, what are the thoughts and intentions of your heart this morning towards the word of God? Maybe a secondary question to to that would be, how did you interact with God's word just in the last seven days since we were here together last Sunday? That might be a good indicator. What is your present, what are the present intentions and thoughts of your heart towards the Bible? We need God's grace to be able to discern those things and have him work in us. He does not leave us in a place of desperation in terms of this can't change. This is just who I am. I'm just way too dry today to understand God's word. God's word is dead to me right now. I've never understood God's word before. God's word seems too complicated. God's word seems too long I never read, and if I would read, why would I read God's Word? There are a lot of things you could throw in there, or you could say, this last week has been sweet in God's Word. The Lord has met with me. The Lord has worked in my heart. He's discerned my thoughts and intentions through His Word and has done some, some forming in me. That has been a beautiful thing. Or maybe you're somewhere on the spectrum between those thoughts and intentions. The main idea this morning for this section of scripture is count on it. God's word does God's work in God's people. You may have noticed that the title was called count on it, the sufficiency of Scripture. Last week was count on it, the promise of persecution. This week it's count on it, the sufficiency of Scripture. And if you break down that word sufficiency and look at this text, I think you'll see this main idea. Count on it. God's Word does God's work in God's people. Let's read it. Again, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, Paul, talking to Timothy, writing to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I'm going to read that one more time. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the second of two assurances that Paul is giving Timothy right here in this nugget of 2 Timothy. If you know from the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is exposing the abusive teachers the false teachers, some of which who are truly creepy because they've been creeping into houses and ruining families through their false doctrine. And he says, the thing is, their doctrine is then supported by their ruinous lives. They will not get very far for their folly, their foolishness. Keep that in mind. Their foolishness will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So Paul is saying this is what's going on Timothy in the church that I know you're trying to pastor in Ephesus. It's rough. It's rough. But as he continues to say throughout this letter, the gospel is entrusted to you, God has called you to this ministry, you got to get to work. You got to get to work. So in this in this nugget right here in the middle just before he charges Timothy At the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, you're going to hear it from Bill next week. It's the most straightforward, powerful command that Paul could give to Timothy. But I'm going to wait for Bill to teach that next week. It's chapter 4, verse 1. So he's about to drop a bomb on Timothy. But right here he has to say, but let me be a realist with you, brother. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But guess what you've got? the word of god god's work god's word does god's work in god's people timothy you know these things believe them don't be surprised when the persecution comes don't be surprised by the by the opposition and don't be dissuaded by any of it fulfill your calling god's word works a few ways that god's word works this morning first of all god's word works cuz the bible makes us wise for salvation. Verses 14 and 15, I've read it twice now, but Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. Do you you hear what he said there? Knowing a couple of things. Continue in what you believe. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Continue in what you believe, but knowing from whom you have believed it. That whom is a plural. He's not saying knowing you believed it from me, Paul even though I do consider myself your spiritual father and you consider me your spirit you consider me your spiritual father and I consider you my spiritual son he's saying know from whom you believed it that 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 whom is plural you learned it from me Timothy but you learned it from your grandmother and your mother grandma Lois and mama Eunice they were the ones that taught you even from childhood That that word could be stretched a little, even from infancy. They have taught you the sacred scriptures. Consider them. Consider whom you learned it from. The character of their lives, the, the desire for them to relationally teach you, should be something that encourages you that you are believing the truth. Think of how long you've known it. You've known it since childhood. And what is it accomplished in you, Timothy? It's accomplished this amazing reality. The Bible can make us wise for salvation. It had the power to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Curious term here, the sacred writings. What does Paul mean by the sacred writings? I mean, literally it means sacred is holy. So the holy writings... At this point, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of New Testament that had come down to Timothy or to Paul, for that matter. He had written some letters that are now in the Word. But when he's talking about sacred writings, he's talking specifically about the Old Testament. All right? Josephus, they mentioned him on the video. Jewish historian. He used the exact same term, sacred writings, when he talked about the Old Testament. Paul here is talking about the Old Testament specifically, and that Timothy was raised on the OT. All right? He was raised on that. He was taught that. And the Old Testament was able to make him wise. Hear what he just called the abusive, creepy teachers? Foolish. Their foolishness would become apparent to them through their lives and through the vapid vacantness of their. Teaching. But Timothy, you've been given the sacred writings and they've made you wise. They've made you wise. A wisdom that can bring about salvation. This This is a clear testimony as we sit here in 2019 and we look at the entirety of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we wonder, what about the Old Testament? When I come to Leviticus or when I come to Isaiah or Ezekiel, or Genesis or Ecclesiastes. How am I supposed to understand what's going on in the Old Testament? Aren't we New Testament people, New Covenant people? Well, yes, but Paul makes it clear here to Timothy that the Old Testament scripture was able to do this in Timothy. Imagine if you had only been raised in the Old Testament. Would those who taught you have been able to do this? would they have been able to take Old Testament stories and say, listen, this was pointing to Jesus. Consider, consider the wisdom of God revealed in Christ that can make you wise for salvation. See, wisdom is the right application of what you know. All right? We're full of knowledge these days, poured in knowledge. Some of it we don't know if it's actually true or not. But we can learn a lot of things. That's not wisdom. That's knowledge. That's understanding. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. See, God through His Holy Spirit gave illumination to Timothy's mind. He threw open the shutters and cast down the light and said in the Old Testament, Timothy, as as Lois and Eunice have taught you, The understanding, the knowledge you've learned, brings wisdom. A right application of that knowledge for faith in Christ. Let's consider communion, since we took that earlier. Communion flows out of the Passover. Last Sunday night, uh, Becca Redinger and Danny Hooper did a great job leading some of us through a Passover Seder, where we receive the benefit of what's going on here. We were able to experience the Passover Seder, a Jewish festival, but through the eyes of faith in Christ. Okay? So here we have the Passover. The Passover started back in Exodus when God's people were in slavery to Egypt 400 years. And then God sends Moses. The plagues come, Pharaoh will not let them go, and the final plague comes. The death of the firstborn. Pretty familiar story, you might know it. Well, what does he do with his chosen people? He speaks his word and says very simply this You need to gather inside your homes, you need to kill a perfect lamb. That perfect lamb, the blood will go over your doorposts, and when the avenger comes through to visit judgment on everyone in Egypt, if you are in your homes, no death will come to you. While you are there, you are to eat of the lamb that has been slain for you. So Timothy, in Lystra, hundreds and hundreds of years later, a Jew himself, knows this story inside and out. And Lois and Eunice by this time are saying, listen, our Lord Jesus celebrated the Passover too. But this is what happened, Timothy, at the Passover. And on this, I lean from something that Danny said last Sunday night. When Jesus celebrated the Passover, when it got to the time in the ceremony when they were supposed to eat the little piece of lamb, as they would have done back in Exodus and every time they celebrated the Passover since, instead of eating the piece of lamb, Jesus picked up the bread and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body. I am the lamb of the world who came to take away the sins of the world. Let my body be broken. In eating of this, you are now eating of the true and full Passover lamb. Jesus stepped into that role in the fullness of wisdom. That's what Timothy is experiencing. But the thing is, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and think, where is Jesus in this? Where is Jesus constantly, constantly, constantly Jesus? That's not exactly what Paul is saying that you find Jesus under every rock in the Old Testament. What he is saying is this that the gospel, the good news, reverberates to the Old Testament. So you might see the Passover lamb that clearly points to Christ. But if you miss the slavery that God's people were under and understand that we too are slaves to sin, apart from the freedom that Christ brings, then you miss the reason for the lamb. Hear what I'm saying? When you see the gospel coming to light in the Old Testament, it's because you're seeing the fullness of the holiness of God the reality of our sin and our depravity, that we desperately need a Savior and judgment is to come as God often visited even on His people. But then you see a Savior. You see the possibility of redemption. You see the formation of a remnant. The people brought together to say, yes, we have heard the word of the Lord and we believe what he has said that's what you see in the old testament reverberating through in case you're just wondering is this just kind of like a thing that paul believed listen to what jesus said in the book of john he said this to the pharisees you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Did you hear that? You search the scriptures, the sacred writings, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Basically saying, you have great knowledge of the sacred writings, Pharisees, thinking that because you have great knowledge, you have eternal life. He goes on to say, and it is they, the scriptures, the Old Testament, that bear witness about me. Yes, the Old Testament testifies to Jesus as the means for eternal life. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here's an important question for us to consider are you Bible wise, or do you just have a lot of Bible knowledge? Have you heard a lot of stories, but have never known Christ? Are you able to say, yeah, "I, I'm seeing the reality of my sin." And then without a Savior, I will be crushed under the weight of it. That my sin deserves punishment. My sin brings me to death. Or do you just say, I've gone to church for a long time and I've acquired a lot of knowledge and I'm set with that. May Jesus' warning be for us. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you're concerned this morning that you have a lot of Bible knowledge, but you're not wise unto being saved, unto salvation, would you just come to Christ? Say, Lord, take all of my knowledge and redeem it. Flush it through with good news life. I've been resting sinfully in my knowledge, in my track record of being a church person. But I need life. I need life. Parents, this is a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge to be able to display the gospel, discipline in the gospel, love and grace and truth in our homes when things are rough sometimes. Take a cue from Lois and Eunice. Let's teach the word but teach it as beggars who are looking for bread and we're showing our kids where the bread is to. Knowing that we need Him, man, because we have a, a, a closer view of our own hearts, we need Him more in terms of what we know than our kids do, if you hear what I'm saying. Church, as we do child dedications next Sunday, it will be an opportunity for us to say, and we will be people too that show the kids among us the gospel through what we believe and how we live out that belief. It's an important thing for us to consider as well. But let me talk to the kids. Shh. Now, one, I'm not going to get them. If anything, it should get us. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. Kids, we're all kids to a certain extent. The younger kids in the house. There will come a day when, and it has probably already come, where you will consider, are the things that my parents taught me as they pointed me to Christ just utter foolishness? when you will be challenged and they will say, the Bible that you believe, it's bunk. Those are fairy tales, nursery rhymes. It was nice that your parents taught you that when you were growing up. Hear from Timothy, hear from Paul to Timothy, continue on, continue on. Trust what you have believed. Trust that God delivered it from people that you trust. Continue on. Hold fast to the good news that Jesus is truly the one from whom salvation is available, and it's not by making yourself good, but it's simply through faith. Be made wise as a child, adults. Let's be wise as children and hear the good news and trust Christ in faith. And Timothy, you've known it. I want you to teach your church the same. Don't don't get into this mess of debates with the people of that, these foolish people around you. You cannot convince a fool. Continue pointing to Christ and let the fools fall where they may. He has made you wise. The Spirit has made you wise. Believe it. One more small point on this. As we, brothers and sisters, engage co-workers, family members, as we want to be good news people, hear how Lois and Eunice were good news people. They used the Word to point to Christ. If you're saying, I have a burden for someone that I desire for them to know the Lord, but I'm always just bumbling in what I say. Would you ask them if they would read the Word with you? Allow the Gospel to the holy spirit to reverberate into their hearts as you just say here's the bread would you eat with me relationally pursue others but with the word second of all god's work the bible specifically sanctifies us verse 16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He says it's profitable for these three things. The teaching, the reproof, the correction, training in righteousness. What does he mean by this? In a nutshell, the Bible sanctifies. God uses it to make us more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. A progressive, growing holiness. All right? But he does it specifically because he names these ways that the Word of God does it. Teaching. This is a, it has a positive connotation. It is Timothy teaching his people. It is you sitting down with the Word and the Lord teaching you through it. All right? It, this is, we've all been taught. This is positive. You're ignorant. We need to be taught. We are ignorant. We need to be taught. But how about reproof? To reprove someone is to censure them, all right? To rebuke them. If teaching is to teach God's way, reproof is to clearly address someone when they stray from the way. God's word says, This is the way to go. But we stray. and We stray from his way. Reproof is that censure or rebuke that says, you're going the wrong way. You're going off the side of the road. Senior year of high school, I went and did a college visit over in Michigan. I just played a football game the day before. So my, my shoulders and my neck were all sore. So we went on this college visit and on the way home with my parents, they let me drive, all right? I was a senior, I had my license. They let me drive, but you know what it's like to come back from Michigan to Chicago. You're going on I-80-90, straight west, and it was a warm, fall, sunny afternoon. Long day, and we're driving straight west, right into the sun. And I started just kind of, Maybe this happened to you before, too. I started to fall asleep at the wheel. All right? My dad is sitting here. Yeah, my dad got me. My dad got me because as soon as we started going off, you started to feel a rumble, a little bit of gravel kick up. Andy, what are you doing? All right? There was that strong, verbal, fatherly, you're getting off the road, wake up. That's what repro- that's what reproof is. All right? Paul is talking to Timothy saying, listen, you have brothers and sisters in your congregation that are straying. They're believing lies and they're living a lie. They're going off the way. Wake them up and use the word to do it. Are you miserable this morning? If you're miserable this morning, I want to toss this out there. Sin makes Christians more miserable than most. Because we're not made for it anymore. Sin makes Christians more miserable than most because we're not made, should I say remade for it anymore. So you may be saying, I'm here this morning and I'm I'm glad I'm under the word. I'm glad I made it to church this morning. But inwardly, yeah, miserable is a good adjective for where I'm at this morning. Can I just say, don't stray? Don't stray. God has shown you so much good. He has shown you so much good. He walked the straight and narrow to the cross, to welcome you into his way, to teach you his way. Don't stray. There's nothing good apart from him. Don't stray. Don't stray. We're reborn to do good. To sin is contrary to the deepest reality of who we are in Christ. Christ came to defeat sin to crush satan why do we dabble in it anymore why do i dabble in it anymore do we love each other enough to graciously as brothers and sisters in a family to say i think you're straying come back to the way you feel spiritually lazy word deficient you lack spiritual vitality consider if you're straying from the way now does this explain every reason that our soul aches no but it's a first it's the first one that you should consider god teaches us through the bible teaches us his way He rebukes us, censures us, calls us out on it when we're straying from His way. And then correction brings us back onto the way. It's my dad grabbing my shoulder and touching the steering wheel. Get back on the road. That's what Paul means by correction here. Bring us back to the way. Psalm one nineteen nine through eleven. How can a young man, a young woman, keep his or her way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Last week we talked about how doctrine and morality cannot be divorced. That's what the psalmist is saying here. I have stored up your word in my heart, so then I won't sin against you. Your word will be the guardrails on my life. They'll be the rumbly things on the side of the road that wake me up when I begin to stray. We so desperately need his word to stay on track, to be corrected into the right track. Do you see the grace of God in this? That he does not just come to save us, but he does. He comes to sanctify us, which he is. And he says, I'm with you. I've given you my word to continue in the way. Live for me. Because, fourthly, God's word works by training in righteousness. And what Paul means by training in righteousness is not working out at the gym righteously. He says this, it's a moral training that leads to right living. It's, it's the day in, day out. Maybe we could use the gym metaphor. All right? It's the day in, day out training. He uses the word, the Greek word paideia. You may be familiar with that. I went to a high school that had the paideia program. It's a, it's a, it's a disciplinary system. Parents to kids or teacher to student. Paul has done this with Timothy. But even more so, he's saying the Word does this to God's people. You might remember from a few weeks ago and we mentioned it last week too. Chapter 2, verse 22. Paul says, So flee youthly passions and pursue righteousness. Flee and pursue. Flee and pursue. Activity, people. Belief that brings activity to say, where am I straying? I got to get back and pursue righteousness. This is not Gospelless morality. This is not get back on the road so you can make your way to heaven in a way where you earn your own place there. It is you have been called, we have been called as sons and daughters of the king. And he said, you're on the king's highway now. We're going to see each other fully one day. I've given you a group of people, your brothers and sisters, to go on the highway with. Live like you love me. Live like you know you're going to see me someday. Live like you know I'm walking with you and living in you today. This is the morality that Paul is trying to talk about. See, the the word of God always forms his people. And if we only say, well, the gospel is good to save me, but because it saved me, I'm walking any way that I want, that's not the gospel that's actually bad news. That's hypocritical news because that in effect gets you in so I can live in sin. Listen, we live in a world today that is not modern anymore, though it is. If you put cyanide in somebody's water and you tell them there's cyanide in here, the, regardless of if they're a modernist or postmodernist, they're not going to drink it. That's a fact. That's a modern fact. That's logic. But you know that so much of the cultural drip into our systems is what works. What makes you feel good? What enhances your experience of life? But the thing is, when we take the gospel to be I get in and then I sin sin, it's this. You're offering a false apologetic to the rest of the world. Not only are you walking in sin, but those around you have no opportunity either to see the light of Christ in you, but even worse, they see hypocrisy in you. The appearance of godliness, but denying its power. The gospel is holistic. It's transformative. It's working in us because God's word works in his people. This is the thing that we have to understand. Flee from iniquity. Flee youthful passions and run towards righteousness. Let Christ have every nook and cranny of who you are. Let him into every single thought, every single choice. Say, I'm a living sacrifice. I throw myself down the altar at your calling, God. You've died for me. How can I keep my life for myself in any sliver of it? It's yours. The thing is, the beautiful thing is, there's no one who could tell you how to live it better. With more flourishing, more joy even in persecution even in opposition even in temptation can god kill sin in you yes he can can god help you this week in temptation yes he can can god give you joy when you hate that coworker from the heart yes he can All right. Can God, if you're full of Bible knowledge this morning, can he somehow open up your eyes for the first time in 50 some years and say this morning you're coming to me? Yes, he can. He can make you wise for salvation and then sanctify you to completion. And not only yes, he can. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. That's the promise of the good news. When someone professes faith in Christ, it's a beautiful thing. But after many, many years of pastoring and discipling, I take a step back. Does God regenerate and save in an instant? Yes, He does. But do I always know exactly what's going on there? No, I don't. The parable of the sower. Time will tell. But when I begin to see someone have a love for God's Word, when they long to see a life marked by obedience, as they dig in and understand the gracious reality of Jesus saving them and the Holy Spirit indwelling them, then we start to see trademarks, a key trademark of someone who has truly known the Lord and will last. They have planted themselves down by the stream. They have heard the the words of Jesus and they have done them, they are doing them, and they are building their house on the rock. They are not hearing the words and letting them flow right by, because when the flood comes, their house will crumble. They are hearing the Word of Gods and the, the Word of God and believing them. I was going to tell a story about Phoebe, but I'm not going to. Maybe I should. Phoebe has a great way. She's my fourth child and This last week, she's sitting in her chair reading the Pilgrim's Progress, so I I, I can't fault her for that, all right? But she's sitting in the chair, and Nat said the same thing to her four times in a row, all right? This is like right before dinner time. It's that, it's, listen, if you're not a parent yet, there's no more trying time in the life of your family than right before dinner time, okay? Phoebe's kicked back, has her feet up on the radiator in the green lounge chair, reading the Pilgrim's Progress. And Nat tells the same thing four times. No response. No verbal response, no activity, no nothing. And Nat says it it the fifth time, and Phoebe looks up and says, I know. (laughs) To which I responded, if you know, then you do. You hear the word, and you do. God sanctifies specifically in us. I'll just say one more thing about this. If you're living under like a general sense of condemnation and the Lord is not saying, this is actually how you're straying, also consider that it can be the enemy who is bringing condemnation on you. Okay, When the Holy Spirit convicts, He convicts specifically. He doesn't just leave you kind of in this malaise of, oh, I just feel guilty all the time. No, the Holy Spirit and His goodness—if you're a Christian—specifically, specifically, specifically, convicts. All right. Third, God's work. The Bible equips us for every good work. All right. This is the last verse here: that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The the man of God that Paul uses here that has echoes of the prophets in the Old Testament uses the same description of the prophets in the Old Testament. He's telling Timothy, listen man, you're prophetic. You're taking God's word and you're proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. Feel that, Timothy. Feel it. You need to do this when you're proclaiming the gospel so that people may become wise for salvation and get saved. But you also need to proclaim it to God's people as the prophets did, willing to undergo persecution and even death because you're speaking the truth. God's people don't always want to hear God's Word. Timothy, you are the man of God, and God, through His Word, has made you competent, equipped for every good work. The equipping part here is, it's a progressive thing, it continues on, but it's also a fully realized thing. In a commentary I read this week, it said this, if Timothy would nurture his spiritual life in the Scriptures, equipping means that he would use in his ministry the Bible. He would be fully qualified and prepared to undertake whatever tasks God put before him. But then this, what a tragedy for any Christian to be labeled as spiritually unprepared for a task when the means of instruction and preparation are readily at hand. So Timothy, you are a man of God. You are prophetic in the way you preach and the way you use the word. And you are capable to meet all the demands that I'm going to give to you. Persecution is coming, Timothy. As you preach, persecution is coming. But take heart. You have the word that will accomplish everything that I've called you to do. But hear this. This is not just a call to Timothy, an encouragement to Timothy, but it's a call to the people of God at large, to the church. If you look back earlier in this, in uh, chapter 3 actually, you'll see that the pattern that Paul sets up is that the culture in times of difficulty, the, the broad culture, what it births, are the false teachers, okay? The culture overall, the system of this world, the the lies of this world birth the false teachers. But when it comes to the word of God, God gives responsibility to those who pastor the flock so that those that pastor the flock, whereas before it's the many make the few, here it's the Lord uses the few to bless the many, all right? This is, this is a tremendous responsibility for those who teach the Word. We desire, Bill and I and others who preach, Joey's preaching up at Grace Family this morning, we desire when we study the Word to be able to say prophetically, thus saith the Lord. If there are things that we say that are not from Him, Lord, just let it drop. Let it not be remembered. Let it not bear fruit. Let it not even drop as a seed. Thus saith the Lord. That's that's the prophetic ministry of the word. And he charges Timothy, talk about it a little bit, chapter four, verse one, the charge next week is to preach the word. So it's not that we just get in our holy huddles and just say, I only have the Bible. No, it's important to be together and hear the preached word so that we as a people don't just have pastors, hear this, So that we don't just have pastors that say, thus saith the Lord, but we are a people defined by thus saith the Lord. So that when we walk out, the words that we speak, the lives that we live, the intentionalities of our hearts, we are thus saith the Lord people. We hear the word of the Lord and we take the word of the Lord at his word, obeying, living in grace, pointing to the gospel. The Lord forms us through his word. Edgewater, would we be a people that are thus saith the Lord, people. Yesterday we had a church work day here and uh, some of us were here and we were just eating donuts and drinking coffee, waiting on some others to arrive. At that point, there was only one person there who had a tool belt on. That was Corey. And Corey is our deacon of building. So I was glad Corey was there. I know Corey has expertise that I definitely do not have. He, always, he also has a lot of tools that I don't have. And it was great to have Corey there. But then, David shows up with his tool belt. Life Thomas shows up with his tool belt. Maybe some others too. If, if you brought up your tool belt and I don't remember, you can remind me after the service. But here's the thing. As more people arrive with more tools, the tools tend to tell us this person knows what he or she is doing. So when more people arrive with the tools, all right, we're doing this. But the thing is, if we all just kick back and said, hey, Corey, good job. David, you got that electricity over there? We'll be over here eating more donuts. That would be the wrong picture of a church workday. That would be a thus worketh Corey, David, and Life, Life Thomas. Not a thus worketh the church. Okay the reason the word is preached is so the wor- the lord forms a people equipped for every good work and i finish with this the thing is all of this hinges on the reality of inspiration okay if there was not a word that a bible that god had breathed out Number one, I wouldn't be able to stand up here and preach this way because I would be preaching from a dead book. There would be no power in the word and I should have no confidence in what I say. But the thing is, and, and also I'll say this too, and you would hear that perhaps, and maybe even hearing it today, you might even hear that as a sort of I'm feeling bad, so i got to start reading my Bible again type application. That would be incorrect. But also just saying, yeah, the Bible's inspired, check. I understand that God made it, check. He breathed it out, check. That would be doctrinally correct, but incorrect application. Because here's the thing. When someone talks to you, there's intentionality to talk to you. When somebody breathes out words to communicate with you, there's a reason that that person is communicating with you. God breathed out his word relationally to us. See, this is the grace of this whole thing. There's been a lot of grace in it, but here's the core of it God breathed out his word to create a people for himself, he breathed at creation and Adam and Eve were formed. He breathed through his covenant to Abraham, and Israel was formed. He came out of Mary's womb, and the word made flesh was formed. And he spoke God's words through 33 years, and at the end of those 33 years, he spoke, it is finished. And the reality of that reverberates throughout all of history forming a people who take God at his word and say, yes, it is finished. Therefore, we are not finished. And God is preparing us for every good work in every part of life and society that we are in every day. We are people that take God at his word. My hope this morning is that the Lord would reinvigorate our love for his word that we wouldn't just say, yeah, I'm going to start reading my Bible again, but we would say, this is a relational thing that God has done here. He's breathed out to make Himself known to His people, to save us, to sanctify us, and to equip us. And I think you got to ask, if your posture towards the Word over these last seven days, the intentions of your heart towards the Word has been lackadaisical, it's been put-offish, it's been dry, it's been boring, i got to say, What else are you doing? In the Word is life. In the Word is life. God has breathed His very character into His Word. And that is where we go to become wise. Last week I talked about the drip of cultural anesthesia. That just... It's because it's, we live in it every day and it drip, drip, drips and puts us to sleep. Brothers and sisters, God is breathing out to you and saying, come out with me outside. Leave the hospital room. Let's go walk in the spring sunshine under the magnolias that are blooming. Come take a fresh walk with me. I've inspired this for you. Would you walk with me this week? Would you have the faith that this can be fresh for you again? Because maybe it's grown stale. Would you invite me this week to to have some time with you? I want to wake you up to my love for you. place to consider if you're feeling that way if you're if you feel like I, I just can't it's been so long I don't understand it let me just give you a few things to think about number one repent and believe if, if you if you if you don't love God's word but you love Jesus the word what else are you doing repent from your unbelief that the Word can be living and active even today in you, and say, Lord, I believe that it can, even though it hasn't been feeling that way, and jump back in, all right? Would you engage the Word? I brought eight copies of this. I'm giving them away for free this morning, and don't be bashful and say, well, maybe I'll just leave it for somebody else. If you're looking for a way to engage the Word this week, it's a phenomenal book. It's 90 days in John 14 through 17, the book of Romans, and the book of James. Take 90 days and say, by God's grace, by August, I'll have spent 90 days in purposeful reengagement with the Lord. All right. If ten of you come up here, then the church will buy it for the extra two. All right. If 50 of you come up here, then we'll have to buy 42 more. All right, these are free for you to take. Please come up and take them. I'll stand up here afterwards and if they're all gone, I'll take your name down. We'll order them and I'll get them to you next Sunday, all right? But lastly this. When you come to the word this week, Lord willing, take this prayer that I composed that helps us put us helps put us in a posture of anticipation as we come to the word directly from this passage. Lord Thank you for your word. You use it to give me saving faith in Christ. Please use it to teach me your way, to bring me back to your way, and to train me to live a godly life in Christ. Please use your word to equip me for every good work you have for me. I'm available to your word. I'm available to you. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. We are available to you. We need to be available to your word. Would your spirit work in us in such a way that you revive our hearts? In your great name we pray, Jesus. Amen.